Hi, everyone. I'm Kyle Bechet, and this is the AAF Exchange, a podcast from the American Action Forum, where experts provide clear, data-driven insights into today's economic and domestic policy issues. Welcome, and thank you for tuning in. Welcome back to another episode of the AAF Exchange. We're going to continue our discussion of the impact and response from the COVID-19 pandemic with Douglas Holtzegan. Doug, thanks for joining us. My pleasure, as always. Another week has gone by, and we're still doing these virtual podcasts. Uh, and how, how are you holding up? It's all good. It's all good. No complaints. The weather's cooling off, and I love that. Yeah, yeah, that's that. It, it is nice to you know get outside. I played I played uh, golf this weekend before the before the one o'clock uh, football games, and um, didn't get overheated at all. We walked eighteen, and you know it was beautiful out. Fantastic. Well, let's uh, jump right into things. Um, we're, we're sitting here. We're more than halfway through September at this point. As we noted, it's getting colder. The days are getting a bit shorter. Um, and the news is clearly shifting from what Congress is, or should we say isn't doing, um, to the presidential race. Um, but stick with Congress for a moment. Is the pressure off of Congress to reach a deal on another coronavirus package at this point, um, and more specifically to pass an extension of the uh, federal UI supplement? I don't know if the pressure's off. I think the pressure's essentially unchanged, and that hasn't been enough to get a deal. Um, you know, they, they, are, they are far apart on policy, and they are uh, checking every day to see if they are losing popularity with the American public because uh, they, they haven't made a deal. So far, no one appears to be uh, politically harmed by this, so there's no reason to move their positions. And it was really kind of remarkable. Yesterday, the president came out and said, yeah, I'd, I'd, much, I'd prefer to have a bigger package. I'd love for people to get some money. Uh, and Republicans on the Hill essentially shrugged. Um, so if the if the president can't move the the negotiating dynamic, I think it's, it's hard to see them getting to yes. Mm -hmm. So you just mentioned that the president came out and said um, he wanted more money. Um, that's generally the way that packages work of this nature on Congress is they just plus up the entire bill so everyone can get to yes on whatever their priorities are. But at this point, what do you think is worse, piling on uh, trillions in additional deficit spending um, that would add to our debt or getting a, or getting no aid package at all? I think it really depends on what you do with the money. I mean, I, I continue to believe that additional deficits that are incurred to do sensible and useful things to support the economy are, are, are the right call at this point in time. Deficits for the sake of deficits? No, that's just something you'll have to clean up later. So, you know, there's no right or wrong answer here. I think it depends a lot on how you think about the risk management um, uh, decision for the economy. So you make a decision now and you're asking between now and the end of the year, how are things going to evolve? Is it the case that in the absence of uh, the the UI supplement, the welfare of those with extended spells of unemployment will remain satisfactory and the capacity of households to spend will be sufficient to drive the recovery. The answers to those are yes, it's easy to just say, okay, we're good. If you're really worried that the answers are, are, are not gonna be satisfactory, then you might wanna put some more uh, UI out there as an income support and as a way to help the welfare of low income households. But as we've discussed in the past, it, it's not an unambiguous call because the more you put out there in the way of a federal supplement, the bigger you, you erect uh, disincentives to go back to work. So, you know, it's it's a tough call. Mm -hmm. And I don't think it's surprising that reasonable people can disagree on this. Mm -hmm. What about what about the CR? I mean, that's part of this whole, you know, 
current negotiation as well. Um, how how will getting or not getting a deal on another aid package impact the CR negotiations? We have been told uh, that they are um, decoupled. That in fact the president, the speaker, the, the Senate um, majority leader are all committed to keeping the government open, which means passing a CR, having the president sign it. If it turned out to be the case, they could get to yes on some COVID-related um, pieces like the state local funding or the the federal UI benefit. They would be added onto the CR. So that, that that's been the the stated position. Now. Um, we haven't got a CR yet, so until that happens, uh, you, you have to wonder. And, you know, there's a long tradition of brinksmanship in Congress and in uh, these CR negotiations. So uh, I'd say it's too early to really declare victory on the CR front. There are some tough decisions to make. Um, for example, uh, if you want to have a continuing resolution, for how long? Do you fund till right after the election? Make people rush back. Most people don't like that idea fun to the middle of December so that people can do the Thanksgiving holidays and then come back and have a lame duck session. Uh, some Democrats are arguing they should fund it through um, the, the sort of middle of January because they're quite confident they'll win and then they can come back and do what they want. You know, they, that, that's a that's a political forecasting question as much as anything. And, you know, um, let's just stipulate right now, I'm not your political forecaster. <laughs> <laughs> Well, fair enough. Um, so today, as we're recording, it's September 17th. Congress just has a handful of days to work all of this out um, calendar wise. What do you think is the expiration date on where we won't see a phase four deal prior to the election? I, I think we've hit it. I, I really do, I, especially yesterday with the president pretty openly weighing in on on the side of let's make a deal and essentially pressuring his own party to move in the Senate and there's no signs of life in those negotiations. So I think the odds are far greater that they don't get to yes and that we just have the CR to clear and and off they go to, to campaign. I, I think that's especially um, true on the Republican side where at least uh, given my casual, and I emphasize casual, uh, following in some of these Senate races, there are Republicans in danger of losing seats that Republicans want, and um, but those races are closing. And they would like to get... Uh, back to campaigning and, and see if they can't further close or, or get leads in those races. So I think there's more pressure to get out of town on the Republican side. Mm -hmm. With some of those vulnerable Senate races, I also saw that, you know, some of the rank and file have come up with a plan, but the leadership has sort of moved away from doing anything on that of that nature, which I find a little interesting. Yeah, no, it's especially the um, the Problem Solvers Caucus in the House, a big bipartisan effort to, to sort of split the difference and come up with a COVID uh, package, uh, you know, nice press release, no action. Um, the speaker's uninterested and end of story. Uh, it's, it's really, they're very dug in in the leadership positions. Mm -hmm. So assuming you're right and there is no deal prior to the election, um, what would drive a deal in a lame duck session? Um, on the other hand, what would kill a li the likelihood of a deal? Oh, it, it's going to depend so much on the outcome of the election. You know, not just who is elected president, but what happens to control the Senate. Um, I'm going to assume that Democrats retain control of the House. Um, uh, it, it would be a shocking upset if they don't. We will see. Um, but, you know, lame ducks are about um, positioning yourself for the next Congress. And uh, so that the nature of the lame ducks is going to be depending crucially on how those those outcomes 
uh, turn out. And, you know, I think control of the Senate's the key. You know, if, if Democrats control the House and the Senate, uh, then presumably they will also control the White House and they, they will not be interested in doing anything in the lame duck. They'll be interested in getting to January and doing what they want on their agenda. And, and so, you know, we, we shall see. Uh, OK, so shifting to the presidential election, I mean, if anybody hasn't been paying attention, that's going on. I saw an article in The Wall Street Journal that outlines some of the key differences uh, between the president, between President Trump and Vice President Biden when it comes to coronavirus testing in terms of policy. Uh, in a nutshell, Biden wants uh, the federal government to drive testing, whereas Trump has sent funding to the states to do testing as they see fit. What do you make of these very different approaches to to this policy. I, I think stepping back from the partisan uh, aspects of it, the the U.S. has never gotten the testing thing right. Not not even close. We we got a late start. Uh, we had this contamination at the CDC, um, and, and really, for any testing regime, we've been behind and struggling from from the word go. And, and then there's the the sort of fundamental. Uh, question of what are you testing for? Um, we've had this conversation before. You, know, you can test for the presence of the, the, the virus and the, the kinds of tests that we've been using, the so-called PCR tests, are extremely sensitive and they will detect just traces of the, of the uh, RNA, the, the genetic components of the virus. Uh, and that's a great thing if you're doing uh, clinical testing to um, figure out where you are in, in terms of therapy and treatment. So do you apply steroids now? You know, we need to know that. On the other hand, uh, when people are contagious, they are spewing RNA uh, millions uh, uh, per second, and even very crude tests can pick that up. And so um, there, we have to decide, do we want to test for contagion? Is that person contagious? And if they are, they should stay home. Or do we want to test for for clinical reasons, and and you don't really have to choose. You just have to figure out where to deploy them. Uh, we are moving toward these more rapid tests, which are less accurate, but we'll, which will pick up uh, people who are contagious. And, and so getting those out, you know, there's now an Abbott test, which will cost $5, comes on a self-contained uh, sort of credit card-like size uh, thing, takes 15 minutes. Um, it still has to be administered by a health professional. Um, I wouldn't rule out uh, HHS seeing this go for a little while and then deciding, okay, in the in the presence of a pandemic emergency, we're going to allow people to use it without a, a health professional and sort of we, we will then be there, right? Pay your five bucks, take a test. Um, so we're, we move, we're moving that way. Um, and, and so now if you think about it, uh, you could have the states easily take federal funding and deploy the mixture of tests that they need for their conditions pretty sensibly. Now, is that a state-driven approach or is that a federal approach? Mm -hmm. um, you know, I, I think it's it's less um, a matter of saying it's it's federal or state. It's a matter of having the federal government sort of set up a paradigm. This is what we're going to do. We're going to do rapid tests in the in businesses and in homes and in schools and nursing homes, and we're going to have clinical tests in these areas. And then the states can go out and decide where their hotspots are, what kind of tests they need, and off we go. But we're a long way from having either regime work very well, to be honest. Good, Good to know. <laughs> Yesterday, uh, the American Action Forum co-hosted a webinar with the Bipartisan Policy Center and the National Employment Law Project. What were the key points you made during your, your talk there? This really was a discussion of uh, what what should the UI system look like, um, especially in the, the midst of this uh, pandemic and, and associated recession. 
Uh, obviously, one of the, the hot button issues is the federal supplement. Um, and the, the folks at the National Public Law Project uh, are, are very uh, committed to the $600 federal supplement uh, unchanged um, for a long time. I'm less convinced that's a good idea. And so my points were, you know, let, let's be honest about the fact that it's a, a disincentive to um, getting people hired. That disincentive is both if I'm making more on UI, that might not want to go back to work. It's also true that if you're an employer and people are making more on UI, you might have to raise your wages in the midst of a recession to hold on to the workers you have. And that's an impediment to, to hiring. Either way, the same dynamic is in place. Um, so as we go forward and we more and more rely on the private sector to generate income for people, and it's important to remember that is happening. If you look at the August employment report, the growth in payrolls, so you think of people, their hours and their wages, all three can be growing. The, the cumulative impact was, was payrolls were growing at an annual rate of 20% in August. That's really fast. That's a lot of income being generated in the private sector. That's what you want. Um, so if that's happening, you want that to be the way people get income, not um, a federal program. So let's bring the, the 600 down some, acknowledge that it's a, an emergency provision. So, so specifically say it will go away. We want to plan for it to go away. And so that means a phase out in my view. Then you just have to figure out where you're gonna start. And to me, um, you know, the work we have done at, at AAF on either the, the, the work disincentives or how much do you have to give minimum wage workers to make sure they're not in poverty, since you started somewhere um, like three or four hundred dollars uh, a week, not six hundred. So we're, 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 we're a little at half or a little more than that um, as a starting point. And then it phases out over the rest of the year. That to me seems like the right middle ground. That is also right in the middle of where they politically are. And so if they could get to a deal, that seems like the right deal. Mm -hmm. We've done many of these podcasts, so forgive my memory if I get if I'm remembering this wrong. But there was a, there was an idea that came up in yesterday's uh, event. I watched it indexing the uh, unemployment supplement to the unemployment when a pandemic uh, unemployment rate when a pandemic is happening. What do you what do you make of that idea? Um, th this is an idea that's been around for a long time, and, and the, the notion goes like this. For setting an unemployment insurance benefit in general, so it's a sort of conceptual matter, um, how should we think about it? Well, it, it is income support for people while they are unemployed, and that allows them the, the ability to look for a good employment match, something that matches my skills I'm interested in, something where the employer wants me. Uh, we can take the time to find that match, which some, sometimes takes a while, and, and still have a standard of living that's acceptable. Um, if the unemployment rate is higher, it's probably going to be harder to find that match because it means uh, employers aren't hiring as much and or there's more competition for, for that match. So at higher unemployment rates, you might need a more generous benefit to allow people to search longer. At lower unemployment rates, the reverse is true, and you can have a, a lower benefit. And so the idea of indexing says that higher unemployment, lower unemployment tells you something about the conditions in the labor market, and that gives you a benefit. The, the problem with that is getting it right. Um, and and the, the, the way it can go wrong is suppose you set the, the federal supplemental benefit at, at $1,200 a week. So let's not even mess with six. Suppose we went twice that. Well, that would be so generous that everybody would be better off not uh, going back to work. And the unemployment rate would be very high and stay very high. And the dynamic would be the reverse. The, the benefit would be causing the unemployment rate, not vice versa. And that's the thing you have to to somehow 
uh, get right if you're going to use that scheme. I'm unconvinced that we know enough about pandemic recessions, this is our first, the nature of the labor market in pandemic recessions, this is our first, and uh, federal supplements, this is our second. You know, we had a $25 win back in uh, the Great Recession to, to really uh, put a scheme like that in place. And so I'm, I'm skeptical in practice, although I understand the theory. The other discussion I heard you guys talking yesterday about was how this is administered uh, policy-wise. What, 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 what is that about? I, you know, you learn a lot when you do events. I always learn more from events than people learn from me, which is, you know, sort of really unfair trade in some in some sense. And so, but, you know, the National Employment Law Project has spent a lot of time on uh, UI systems and uh, has been doing this for years. And so they know a lot about administrative failures. You know, why is it that people can't get signed up for UI? Why is it that, that benefits don't get delivered on time? What's going wrong in terms of processing or or just the 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 computer infrastructure and i think it's safe to say we have learned that our ui systems are not uh, robust enough to handle the situations we're in differs by state these are state level programs but but i don't think any state stands out as having been ready for this kind of an event and it's made given everyone i think a little bit of pause because among other things there there are ideas that people have had like let's give you a fixed percentage of your wages, which would be different across people, and the states can't do that. That's 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 an option you just can't do. Um, that's why we ended up with a six hundred dollar benefit. And so, you know, if if the administrative deficiencies are dictating federal policy, you start to think maybe it's time to get the administration up to snuff. And I think that's the right answer. Mm -hmm. Okay. So finally, I want to end on this um, on your dish from yesterday. Your discussion, a, a discussion from your dish from yesterday. Uh, you wrote about a couple of new executive orders that came out from the Trump administration in the area of healthcare. What are these executive orders about? Um, th this goes back to drug pricing, and uh, in late July, the president signed four executive orders on drug pricing. One was free insulin at um, uh, sort of safety net hospitals and other locations. Second was importation of drugs, uh, particularly from Canada. Third was on um, uh, getting rebates to the point of sale instead of having them be collected by insurance companies or pharmacy benefit managers, making sure that when you when you buy the drug, you get your share of the manufacturer rebate. And the fourth uh, was this so-called most favored nation approach to pricing Medicare Part B drugs. So these are typically cancer drugs you have to go in get infused so you're in a, in a physician setting as a hospital or an office um it's not like going to the pharmacy um and the idea is look around the, the world at our um sort of developed competitors find the lowest price in those countries and that's the price that we will pay in medicare part b for for those drugs and that's the most favored nation kind of setup so the president signed that in late july held it up and said uh, i know pharma hates this um so i'm not going to put it in the federal register. We're going to have a negotiation. And if we can come to a deal, then I won't do this. Um, but if we can't come to a deal, then, then I'm going to go ahead. And so on Sunday, while you were watching football, uh, the president of the United States issued executive orders that said, you know, essentially the negotiations have failed and we're going ahead with the most favored nation approach. But he actually repealed the one he signed back in July and signed a new one that did it not just for part B, but also for Part D drugs, things you go to the pharmacy to buy. And I, I will tell you honestly, I don't know how that's supposed to work um, because in the Part D setting, you have contracts between manufacturers and insurers and pharmacy benefit managers 
we're in the middle of a contract here. They, th this would have to break all those contracts, and that's I, I just don't know how the president thinks that's going to happen. So, so there, there's some some mystery about this. But um, you know, the president went ahead with the Part B part. My understanding, again, this isn't in the executive order. The executive order directs HHS to do a rulemaking to to implement this. The rulemaking that is uh, expected is uh, something called an interim final rule, which is a a pr procedure where you skip proposing the rule, getting public comments, revising the, the rule in, in uh, light of the comments, but instead just put it into place, have it be effective. That's an extraordinary thing to do um, when it looks like you'd be changing hundreds of billions of dollars of drug spending as a result. I, I think that's unlikely to sit well with anybody. Congress, I think, is extraordinarily displeased quietly that this is a huge uh, executive power grab. And I think you're going to see uh, a lot of lawsuits over this. I don't think it'll actually go into place. I, I, I'm unhappy about this step uh, on two grounds. Uh, ground number one is the policy itself, which I think is is misguided and will lead to diminished uh, availability of uh, high quality therapies in the United States. That's what we've seen elsewhere. And so we're buying into that regime. Uh, and also the fact that it gives the the Democrats ammunition for some of their legislation, which contains similar, similar provisions. And, and, and to me, for them to be able to stand up and say, well, look, a Republican president proposed this, we should pass it, is not a particularly appealing soundbite. And so, um, you know, it, it was nice that you called my dish a discussion. It was really just a therapeutic rant about what a bad idea this is, because it's a really bad idea. Yeah. Um, what about in the context of COVID-19? Do you think uh, um, this could hurt would, you know, increased compliance costs and regulations could hurt the response at all from for pharma? I, th I think these pharmaceutical um, companies are, are locked in on their um, agendas to produce effective and safe vaccines. They, you know, they, they've got some support from the government. There's no question about that. Helping them with the research and development, you know, getting the, the production going even prior to um, FDA approval. I don't think anything that goes on elsewhere in the drug space is going to change that. Um, they, they know this is a, a global um, show up moment and they're and they have done remarkable things, quite frankly, to date. And um, we'll, we'll see how it works out. I, I think there's a good chance that there could be, you know, out of the eight worldwide that are sort of being developed, there could be three, four, five safe and effective vaccines uh, if you roll the clock forward to, say, next July. And. And that would be an extraordinary accomplishment. It's essentially a year to map the the, the virus's uh, genetic structure, produce the vaccines. Really, really kind of amazing. Um, you know, it, it's worth saying, Kyle, that you know, there's a lot of chatter, um, much of it from the president himself, about when these vaccines will, will be fully ready. No one knows the answer to that. When you do one of these phase three drug trials, you have a group that gets the placebo, a group that gets the vaccine, and you set them, send them off to um, uh, be exposed to the virus and see if it works. Until enough people are diagnosed as having been exposed to the virus, you can't stop the trial, right? And so there, there is no known end date, there, and there can't be. And if, for, you know, if, if magically, you know, we, we had a therapeutic and, and social distancing and masks that were effective enough to sort of really knock down the potential exposures, it might take the placebo group a long time to get enough exposures to actually certify the vaccine. So, you know, everyone needs to just take a deep breath and um, hopefully it'll come soon. Don't know. 
and and that's that's the lay of the land. Mm-hmm. Well, we all hope that it does come soon, but you know, keep moving forward. Right, Doug. Thanks again for a great discussion this week. As I always ask, what fun plans you have for the weekend? Um, uh, weekend plans look the same. Um, uh, favorite thing is to get up Saturdays and Sundays and take the dogs to the dog park, uh, wash them around like a mad dog, and then collapse for the day. That's fantastic. Um, we got a couple of wine tastings. Hopefully, we'll see some friends. Um, you know, really looking forward to the arrival of uh, fall weather. It's my, one of my favorite seasons. So, um, and, and it's nice to have football games back. I mean, I'll be honest. It's, uh, you know, it's not the same as, as with people in the stands, but it's it's still fun to have something to watch. So I'm looking forward to that as well. Yeah, yeah. I was really impressed with the beginning of the Cam Newton era in New England. Um, as you know, I'm a New England fan. So uh, it was good to see. Yeah, it was good to see that. Still smile, but not that. and last week i did i i do have to note the last week i did make a mistake and said that the golf us open was on last week and it's actually on this weekend so that's a nice surprise that i you know i got it wrong but at least you know now i have something extra to do this weekend so who are you picking well i always i'm a i i'm i'm a lefty so i always hope for my man phil but uh the the guy coming in hot is uh justin uh justin thomas right now so might have to go with him he he looks to me. I, I hear Dustin Johnson is the best golfer in the world right now. And um, uh, if you had to pick one, that's it. That's a good pick. Yeah, yeah. So, anyways, Doug, thanks for uh, sitting down with us again, and look forward to our discussion next week. Happy to do it. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed this conversation. Tune back in for our next episode, where our experts will provide clear, data-driven insights into today's economic and domestic issues. I'd also encourage you to check out any of the links in our show notes, and also follow us on social media to learn more about AAF. Don't forget to subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or Google Play.